Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to The Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. 88% of Americans claim to be Christians. The great majority of those, of course, believe in God, as it's difficult to be a Christian if you don't. But they not only believe in God, they believe in heaven. And ultimately, most of them, if you were to ask them, would say they believe they're going to heaven. Now, where it begins to break down is when you ask them how they plan on getting there. We have come to the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In today's study, we look at the final nine verses of Matthew 7, starting in verse 21. At the close of this amazing sermon, Jesus shares with us what is likely the most important part of it, helping us understand what it means to truly know the Lord. Matthew 7, 21-29, the absolute necessity of obedience. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Now everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall." And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount the very same way he began it, speaking about the kingdom of heaven. I don't know how aware you are of how many Americans consider themselves to be Christians, but a recent poll showed as many as 88% of Americans claim to be Christians. The great majority of those, of course, believe in God, as it's difficult to be a Christian if you don't. But they not only believe in God, they believe in heaven. And ultimately, most of them, if you were to ask them, would say they believe they're going to heaven. Now, where it begins to break down is when you ask them how they plan on getting there. And uh, are they sure that they've truly connected and will be received and will be, will be accepted? Well, what we found as we've studied through the Sermon on the Mount is that God requires, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. That was back in chapter 5, verse 20. And, and when we looked at it, we saw that that is a totally, and in that context, was a totally radical statement. Why? Outwardly, observably, the scribes and Pharisees were the most spiritual, right-on people of their day. But Jesus is saying you've got to have something more than an outward appearance of spirituality. There needs to be an inward reality. And that's what they lacked. 
They could look spiritual, act spiritual, talk spiritual, but when it came right down to it, they didn't have the righteousness that was acceptable to God. What is that righteousness? It's the righteousness he imputes, that he imparts to those who believe in his son Jesus, who put their faith, their trust, their confidence in what Jesus has done. Well, we need his righteousness. And he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So there is a kingdom. There is a king. God is awaiting his people. Jesus promised the one who uh, went before us that he would prepare a place for us and would come again and receive us unto himself that where he is, we may be also. In chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus said, we need to make seeking his kingdom and his righteousness our personal priority. Why? Again, unless we seek first the kingdom and unless we seek first the righteousness that will allow us entrance into the kingdom, well, we're never going to inherit the kingdom of God. We'll never make it to the kingdom of heaven. So there's a righteousness required. It has to be our personal priority to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We saw in the conclusion of our last study that it's a narrow entrance and a difficult road that leads to everlasting life. Now, here in chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus makes yet one more more jaw dropper, another totally radical statement. And what he's getting at here is that we could be orthodox doctrinally. In other words, we could know who Jesus is. We could confess that he is the Lord. We could tell other people about him and do things in his name. But the question won't be, are we orthodox doctrinally, but are we really living as if that were true practically? Now, it is essential, and I don't want anyone to misunderstand, that we confess Jesus as Lord. Unless you believe I am, Jesus said, you will die in your sins. And he said, unless you confess me before men, well, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father and the angels in heaven. But if you deny me before men, he says, I'll deny you before my Father and the angels in heaven. So confessing Jesus as Lord, hey, it is absolutely essential. And again, most in this room would say, well, I've certainly done that. I believe he's the Lord. I've confessed he's the Lord. I've professed that he's the Lord. But get what he says. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. That's meant to challenge us. That's meant to to shake us a bit and say, well, we're instructed, make your calling an election sure. Be sure you're in the faith. So the question is, are we submitted personally and practically? Are we serving Jesus as Lord? Not just do we call him Lord or believe he's the Lord, but are we submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Now the test that he gives us is obedience. And note here, he says, not everyone who says shall enter, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus basically asked the question, why do you say, Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? He couples his teaching and his will with the teaching and the will of the Father. Why? 
Jesus throughout his ministry said, hey, I only do those things the Father shows me. The works I do, they're the works of the Father. The things I teach, these are the things the Father is sharing with me and through me. So Jesus was absolutely connected to the Father. So much so that when Philip said, hey, we want to see the Father, he said, hey, I've been with you so long and you don't recognize me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, don't confuse that statement with the idea that Jesus is the Father. No, Jesus is the Son. But he's saying, if you want to know what the Father's like, look at me. You want to know what he thinks? Listen to me. You want to obey the Father? Obey me. Why? He was the exact representation of the Father. He did always those things that please the Father. And he rightly represented the Father. Now, if the test is obedience... The motivation, again, is going to be love. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus isn't only looking at what we do, but why we do it. But here's the test. Obedience. We call him Lord. Do we live as if it's true? And are we living that way because we love him in response to him? Like Peter, some of us are more like, no way, Lord, or that's never going to happen, Lord. And if you read through the Gospels, you'll find that Peter had a real problem with simple obedience to the commands of the Lord. And when the Lord told him, this is what's going to happen, or this is what I'm going to do, or this is what I want you to do, Peter was one that was oftentimes questioning the Lord or flat out just rebuking the Lord and saying, no, that's not going to happen. Or at one point he just says, not so, Lord. I want to suggest to you that that really is an oxymoron. You can say a lot of things to the Lord, but you can't say, no way, Lord. At very practical level, if uh, you work somewhere, and I know most of you do, and you go into work and the boss tells you what to do and it's not illegal or immoral or unethical, well, even even if it is, he can still fire you, but you know, that's where you're going to draw the line, right? You're not going to do anything that contradicts the scripture as contrary to it. So, but if your boss gives you something to do, you'd rather not do it. And you say, I don't think so. Well, you're going to be in the unemployment line soon, or you're going to be searching the paper for another job. Why? You can call him boss, but unless you obey him, he won't be your boss for long, nor you, nor you his employee. So, Jesus is just saying, you can say, Lord, Lord. The question is, do you do what he says? Now, Jesus is the Lord. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. There's no question about that. The question is, among those who say Jesus is Lord, how many actually live as if that were reality. Now, the Father's will, as I already shared, is revealed by and through Jesus. And as we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and I just went through and jotted, so this is going to be like a race. You don't even have to go back through them. But, but I just want to, to refresh you on a few of the things he's commanded. Now, these aren't just the teachings of Jesus. These are the commandments of Jesus, as we've looked at Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In the uh, face of being reviled, persecuted, and slandered, he says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. So according to this, unless we rejoice and are exceedingly glad in the midst of persecution and rejection and such, well, we're saying, Lord, but we're not doing what he says. He says, let your light so shine before men that they would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When you bring your gift to the altar, leave it 
If you remember your brother has something against you or you against him, be reconciled to your brother, then offer and agree. He, he, he says when it comes to sin, we need to see it as serious and take drastic measures. So much he uses those examples, of course, not expecting us to literally pluck out our eye or cut off our hand, but he's saying this is how you need to see sin. You need to see it as spiritual cancer. Better to lose an eye or a hand and to enter into life than to uh, be whole physically and, and fail to enter in. He says not to swear, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Keep your vows. Don't resist. Turn the other cheek. Give more than ask. Go the extra mile. Love your enemies. Bless and do good and pray for those who um, take advantage of you and despitefully use you. Take heed. Don't draw attention to yourself, he says. When we come to prayer, he says, don't be a hypocrite. Don't pray like the heathen. Don't use vain repetitions, but forgive when you pray. And and um, then, of course, he said, don't lay up or serve stuff, but do lay up and serve God. Lay your treasures up in heaven and serve God. Don't worry. Do consider. Seek first the kingdom. Don't judge. Do repent. Do restore. Use discernment. Ask, seek, and knock. Do unto others. Enter the narrow gate. Beware the false prophets. The, the, the point I'm trying to make is, as I read through these things and as you read through these, as we study them together, he's actually commanding us to do all these things. And, and I think that there's a great danger in, in being so familiar and, and, and just being into it like, man, we're, we're seriously studying. So we may understand these things better than someone else. But Jesus isn't going to test us on our understanding. It's not going to be, well, let's see, did you really get the intricacies of the, the present tense in that passage? You know, No, he's going to say, did you do what I said? That will be the test when he, we stand before him. We said, Jesus is Lord. Did we live as if and do we live as if he is the Lord? Now, in John 640, Jesus said, the father's will is that everyone who sees and believes in him will have life. It's not his will, any perish, but all come to repentance. So what what happens here in verse 22 is he says they profess to know him. They profess to serve him. They profess to represent him. And note, three times they say, in your name, in your name, in your name. They don't just say, Lord. They say, Lord, Lord. So there's a fervency in their, their uh, saying, we're yours and we're serving you and we're representing you. But he says in verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name. Like the false prophets who came before them, like those we considered last time, these guys come saying, thus says the Lord. And... um they, they profess to have done three things, prophesied in his name. They come saying, thus says the Lord, and here's what they have to say. But like the false prophets before them, they neither stood in his presence, nor did he speak to them, nor were they speaking for him. And like the false prophets of the future and the false prophets of our day, Jesus warns that many would come, false Christ and false prophets, and would draw men away, deceiving many through lying signs and wonders. These guys demonstrate power. 
They cast out demons in the name of Jesus. They do many wonders in his name or by his authority, because that's really the whole idea of using someone's name is to use their authority or, or you know, share their authority. Now, now, there is something that's a bit puzzling here. We should at least explore it for a moment. You got to wonder if, if they say we cast out demons in your name, did that actually happen? Is it possible for an unbeliever to be used by God and uh, to do mighty works for God, only to stand before him and have him say, I never knew you? Well, I think that Judas would be the proof that such a thing is possible. We know that Jesus put those disciples together two by two and he sent them out to preach the kingdom was at hand, to heal sicknesses and diseases, to cast out demons, to to go before him. Now, if Judas had been unable to occupy or, or, or carry out that ministry, whoever was paired up with him would have said, something's wrong with this guy. This guy's a fraud. But it would appear that God enabled and used Judas And yet Jesus says of Judas, he was the son of perdition. He never submitted fully to the lordship of Jesus. And yet God was able to use him. It's possible that these guys, because they invoked the name of Jesus and because there's power in the name of Jesus and because Jesus has compassion on the suffering and the hurting and the demon possessed and such, that God honored some of those situations and and people were actually freed. It's also possible that because Satan is a liar and a deceiver, that if the people were ever demon-possessed in the first place, that there would be an appearance or, or, or the false prophet would be given credibility by the demons actually coming out. Well, what would that do? Well, these guys would be leading people astray. That's what the enemy wants. And we can't really know from this passage if these guys were actually able to cast out demons or if the whole thing was a fraud in their case. We know Jesus did cast out demons, that his disciples did in fact cast out demons. And these guys lay claim to doing many wonders in his name. They functioned in the realm of the supernatural. And then he will declare to them, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you know that Saul was the first king of Israel. And back in 1 Samuel 15, God had instructed Saul to go out and to destroy the Amalekites. He wanted him to not only wipe out the people, but to wipe out the leadership and pretty much just wipe out everything there, the animals included. Saul comes back from that battle. He spares King Agag or Agag and, uh, and he brings back the best of the flocks and herds. He decided he didn't want to destroy. In fact, let me read this to you. In fact, go back. First Samuel 15. It's just, it's too powerful. The statement it makes. I want you to at least read two of these verses with me. But what happens is he, as you're going, first Samuel 15. He comes back having spared a agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, all that was good. Says he was un- utterly unwilling to destroy them and everything despised and worthless they utterly destroyed. So, so what happens is God speaks to Samuel and says, I'm grieved that I made this guy king. I, I regret it and I'm going to take the kingdom from him. And so Samuel goes out to speak to Saul, and as he goes out, 
Samuel says, what's going on here? You know, what are you doing? And uh, look at verse 13 with me, 1 Samuel 15. It says, blessed are you of the Lord. I've performed the commandment of the Lord. So here's Saul saying, hey, I'm back and I was a success. Samuel says, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen I hear. He says, if you did what the Lord commanded you, why am I hearing these animal sounds? Well, Saul said, they have brought them from the Assyrians for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. The rest we've utterly destroyed. Now, what is he doing? God told him to go out and make sure everyone and everything was destroyed. And when he gets back, having failed to do what he was told to do, he says, oh, well, they decided, or the people, they kept them, and they kept them to sacrifice. Like, oh, that's what the Lord wants. Well, as they go through the whole thing, Saul says, uh, you know, Samuel says, listen, the Lord sent you on a mission. You were the one that was to do it. In verse 20, Saul responds, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission the Lord sent me. And I, yeah, I brought back Agag, the king of, the, of Amalek, and I've utterly destroyed the Am- Amalekites, but the people took the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God and guilt. Gal. Now, here's the Lord's bottom line spoken through the prophet Samuel. Verse 22, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And here's the judgment on Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. To obey is better than sacrifice. That's really what Jesus is trying to tell us. It's not enough to believe intellectually or affirm publicly that Jesus is God the Son, that he is the Savior of the world, that he is the Lord. Listen, the demons were told, believe and tremble. You can believe all the right stuff about Jesus and still be lost. Now, I know that's not going to be the case for most people here. But I would hate to be in heaven and stand before the Lord and have most of you there as well. Only to, to, to look around and think, whatever happened to her? I, man, what happened? In, the deal is you've got to make sure. Make sure that you're in the faith. That you're not just sacrificing. That you're not just doing something. That you're doing His thing. Now in contrast, go back with me to Matthew 7. In contrast to all of that, In Hebrews, we're told of Noah. And of course, you're familiar with the story. God appears to him at a time where, well, it would appear that there had never really been any storms yet. And God says, I'm going to flood the earth. I'm going to cause the rains to fall and the storms to come and I'm going to flood the earth. And Noah, I want you to build an ark for the saving of your household and for all the species on the planet. And, and, And what does Noah do? We're told Noah moved with godly fear didn't just believe in arcs, he built an ark. And and that's the difference, you see. There are a lot of people today who believe in Jesus, but they've never really entered into Jesus. Well, Noah did. He built an ark 
and then he boarded the ark, and then God shut him and his family and all those animals in, and then the rains came, the floods came, and in that storm, all human life perished except those that were safely in the ark. It becomes a picture to us. Why? Because we need to be, we're told, in Jesus. Had Noah simply said, oh man, I, I believe in arks, and I believe in arks, the only way to be saved. And But you know, building an ark, I mean, that's sort of a project. And we're out in the middle of the desert. I mean, how, are, is it really logical and practical to expect a flood to come and get us here? It didn't matter how things appeared or seemed. It only mattered that he understood what the Lord wanted and he obeyed. He did what the Lord required. 1 John 2.5 tells us, Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. It is very important to remember that God perfects us. We do not perfect ourselves. Obedience is a choice, a choice to follow Christ in all ways, but doing so is not powered by the strength of your flesh, but through the power of the Spirit. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.